Friends, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We come to uh, the next portion in our study of this letter. I want you to look as we read through this for the three times Jesus Christ appears. I almost titled it, you know, the, the, the three appearings or the the appearings of Christ. I didn't, ultimately. I thought about it, debated. But um, as I read through it, let me invite you to look for the places in which Jesus Christ appears. We'll read chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. We'll read through verse 28. As I always do, let me remind you that this is written by a human, the author of Hebrews. It's written by the Lord. Therefore, We are to accept it with love, not with boredom, not with sadness, not with dullness. We are to expect that something will happen to us. Do you expect that? I pray you do. Beginning in verse 23, Hebrews 9. After having told us that under the law, everything is purified with blood. Having told us in verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The author continues, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places each year, every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly waiting for him. The grass will wither, the flowers, they may be beautiful, but they will fade. This word is even more beautiful because it does not fade, but it endures forever. Let's pray and ask this word to endure in our hearts this week. Lord, we ask that you would appear. You would appear In this text, you would appear in your word preached. You would appear in our minds, our hearts right now. But ultimately, Father, we thank you that you have appeared in Jesus Christ. We pray that you will appear soon once more. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we come to the the three appearings of Jesus Christ. We come to the sacrifice of Christ given to us in these jam-packed, Verses. These are verses, these six or so verses that really hit us at the core with what sound like basic fundamental truths of Christianity. And they really are, actually. They really are basic truths of Christianity, but they're ones that you and I forget. They're ones that you and I are tempted to forget. You, you'll recall what uh, uh, the audience is here. The author's writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are discouraged. They're down. They're not happy. They're tempted. They're tempted to go back to what looks cooler and flashier and a lot more fun. And they're persecuted because they're not doing it. 
They look down upon because they're not doing it. And the argument he's been laying out in the whole book is Jesus Christ is superior to anything else in the known universe. He is superior and better than anything else. And remember from last week what I said, it's not that Jesus is better in the sense of being an alternative. You know, you like PC, I like PC, you like Mac, right? I like the Braves, you unfortunately like the Mets or something like that. It's not that Christ is like an alternative. It's not that he's even a replacement. You know, you had a rotary phone, now you replace it with a you know, fancier phone. You get a dumb phone, now you get a smartphone. No, no, no. He is the fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He is, as I mentioned last time, the rose blossom that is in the rosebud, but is so much more beautiful than the rosebud. It's a powerful argument because as he's been laying out, I hope you've been able to track with us the last few weeks, following Jesus Christ means you don't lose what matters. When you begin to understand this, you realize that being a Christian means you do not lose what really matters in life and that ultimately you will not lose what matters most. And so he argues here now in this paragraph, this brilliant paragraph, we get the basics of the Christian faith renewed and set forth. The beauty of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, set forth for us. We get it in these three appearings. You'll uh, realize he's been talking about the location of the tabernacle. If you were here last week, if you weren't, let me just tell you, he's been talking about the location of the old covenant worship. Where did they go? They went to the temple. They went to the tabernacle. What happened? A lot of stuff happened there. He's going to go into a little bit here. Um, But we come by way of these three appearings to understand what's being said in these words. Why three appearings? Because on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, the Jewish high priest would appear three times in the day. And the other is saying, the Jewish high priest appeared three times, Jesus Christ is going to appear three times. He transforms those three appearings. Let's look at the first appearance. We find it in verse 26, actually. The first appearance... The writer says, Jesus has appeared. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is talking about something that would happen on the Day of Atonement in uh, part of the tabernacle. The high priest would appear with two goats. You may know this. The high priest would appear with two goats. One of those goats would be sent away to take away the sin of the people. The other goat was to die. One of those goats was an escape goat or a scapegoat. And all the people would see the goat that was scheduled to die. They would watch that little animal sit there. I guarantee you, if we had a goat here, you'd be looking at the goat. But it wasn't just an interesting moment. It was an incredibly solemn moment. The high priest in all his robes, he would take a knife. He would slash open the throat of the goat. He would cut the throat of the goat, and the people would watch. You would watch. It's a horrible thing. I think we, we have a problem in our day. We speak very flippantly, casually about sacrifices. It was a horrible thing to see. They would watch the blood gushing out of the goat's throat. The knees of the goat would buckle. It was awful. And they would know the goat was dying for them. They would hear its bleats. 
Its blood would be shed for their sakes as a sin offering. They would see the death of an innocent animal for sinners. The high priest would kill the goat and then offer it on the altar as a substitute. So we read here in verse 26, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. You read it in verse 28. He sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. You see his basic point. What happened at Calvary, what happened on the cross when Christ was nailed to the cross was the fulfillment of hundreds of goats, hundreds of goats, one a year, every year, who had died for the sin of the people. All of the animals, all of the blood was completed, was brought to perfection when Jesus Christ died on that cross. It was an awful altar. It was way more awful than a goat on the Day of Atonement. It was a hill shaped like a skull. But the other ones, you see three ways. This awful atonement, this awful altar, Christ's crucifixion was superior. Three ways in which Christ's crucifixion was superior to those Old Testament goats. First, we read verse 26. Jesus has appeared once for all. That's a beautiful phrase to think about, once for all. It's so final, you know, it's so definite, so complete. Atonement for sin finished forever. Atonement for sin finished forever. One final remedy for sin. Second, we read that Christ also appeared once for all to do away with sin. One of our problems is that we don't think Christ has done away with sin. We think he's done away with some of our sins some of the time. We don't think he's done away with it. We don't think he's executed sin. We don't think he's killed sin. But Christ comes to finish and bring full and absolute pardon for sin. The goat dying in the temple, temporary relief. Pardon for ignorance for a short time. But Christ does not just deal with the ignorant sins, you know, the sins you oopsied. You didn't mean to commit it, but it kind of happened. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean for that to occur. No, Jesus Christ comes to deal with your deep sin. He comes to deal with your dark sin. He comes to deal with the things that you meant to do and you meant to not do. Deal with it in the most profound way. Christ says, I do away with those ugly sins. Not the polite middle class, not the polite bourgeois American sins, not the polite southern sins. I do away with bad sins, sins that we don't talk about in the South. But third, as it is, he has appeared once for all to put away sin. How? How? By the sacrifice of himself. It's the climax of verse 26. It's the biggest contrast with the old covenant between an animal and the son of God. What's the difference? An animal, a goat that cannot think for itself. A goat that very sadly could not understand what was happening. A goat that could not contribute anything but its own blood. A goat that was blinking and unthinking and just standing there. And it's a goat also, by the way. It's an animal. But what does Christ give? What does the new covenant give? Himself. Think about how the book of Hebrews has talked about Jesus Christ. Remember all that we've been taught about him these past months or so. 
He is, chapter 1, the brightness of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is entirely undefiled. That one suffered for sinners. Not blinking and unthinking like a beast, but fully cognizant of what it would cost him. At Calvary, something incredible took place. The very Son of God himself died for us. The very Son of God offered himself for us. He shed his blood for us. This is why in his first appearing, Jesus Christ is far better than any sacrifice offered. You understand that you can never think too much about the cross? That sounds very passe and old hat, but do you understand you can never think too much about the cross? Do you know that you ought to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died every single day? Because he sacrificed himself to do away with sin. Himself. He did it. He did it deliberately. He agreed to do it. He willingly said, I will give myself. The very Son of God did that for you. We are told that the important thing here is not the blood. You know, the goat's blood would gush from the, from the, from the wound, the, the cut throat. And some people think that that's the really important thing about Jesus. He gave his blood. No, 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 no. The fluid's not the important thing. It's the fact that it comes from the Son of God. It's who he is. It's the person of Christ that is offering his blood that makes all the difference in the world. So that's his first appearing. Second, verse 24, we see his second appearing. First appearing is what he has done on Calvary. Second appearing, we read that Christ did not enter a man-made temple. He did not enter this church. He did not enter a sanctuary. He entered the heavenly sanctuary, the real one, the true one, not a copy. And he did it, verse 24 says, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You know, in the old covenant, the high priest would appear first at the altar of burnt offering. He would take the blood of the goat after having having killed this goat. He would take the blood of the goat and he would pass into the holy place, the second level of holiness in the tabernacle. And then he would pass behind the second veil into the third level, the holy of holies. There were grades of holiness, you know. He would pass into the holiest place, the holy of holies. That little room filled with incense, that little room filled with fragrance. In that smoke-filled room, the high priest would take the blood of the goat. He would sprinkle it seven times on the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that contained the staff of Aaron that had budded, the ark that contained manna from the desert, the ark that contained the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law. He would sprinkle it seven times on that ark, and he would sprinkle it on the atonement cover on top of the ark. He would give a moment of prayer before God's face. He would have the blood of the offering. He would have the goat's blood on his hands. It was the most sacred moment of the whole year for Israel. It was the most sacred religious experience you could have as an Israelite. They were thinking, our priest is in the presence of God. 
And he is atoning for our sins. He is offering the blood of the sacrifice. Leviticus 16, 16 says, In this way, the priest will make atonement for the rebellion of Israel. It was an intense moment. It was a solemn moment, but it was also a joyful moment. It was a happy moment. The Jews would know, my sins atoned for. And then we come to verse 24. We look at Christ. Christ does not enter that copy. He enters the true temple. He now appears for us in God's presence. You think about the ascension of Christ, which we don't do nearly enough. You think about the ascension of Christ. Where was he going? He was going into the Holy of Holies, not in a temple in Jerusalem, but in the very sacred presence of God Almighty. He was going there. What? He was going there with the marks in his hands. He was going there with the nail prints. He was going there not as a goat that had been slain, but as a lamb that had been slain, an innocent lamb that had been slain. He is the one who goes there, and the writer says he's there now. He appears there now at this very instant while I am preaching, and you're doing whatever you're doing. Jesus Christ is praying for you. He's appearing right there, right now. If you're a Christian for you, think about that. Think about that. This very moment, the God man is in the most holy place. This very moment he is doing right now for forever what the Jews got once a year at one time for a few minutes. You get that all the time. And instead of clouds of incense that smell nice, you get actual prayers. Instead of clouds of incense that smell nice, you get actual prayers that Jesus Christ offers up for you. He intercedes for you. He's not gone into the holy place for a few minutes. He has gone there for 2,000 years. All of that time now to appear for us. That's why we sang before the throne of God above. It's a fun song. I like the song. But it's not just a fun song. It's a true song. But before God's throne... Not here on earth, but above. We have a high priest. You know, one of the things that bothered the early Christians, these Jewish Christians, is they didn't have visual aids that were cool in their new worship style. They didn't have cool visual aids. Their worship didn't look fun. It didn't look exciting. It wasn't jazzed up. You know, back when they were Jews, they had the incense. They had the goats being killed. They don't have any goats being killed in their new church services. That's not nearly as exciting. And all around them in the Greek and the Roman religious world, what did they have? Plenty of visual religious aids. They had the great temple of Artemis, of Diana in Ephesus. The great and glorious statues that look so beautiful. They look, they look kind of old today, but back in their day, they were something. The reconstruction show us they, they were beautiful. And the old covenant temple, there was the gold, there was the bronze, there were the pomegranates, there was the ritual, there was the ceremony, there were the robes, there were the vestments, there was the splendor, there was the incense. It was awesome. People traveled from across the world to see Solomon's temple and Herod's version too. And these Christians had given all of that splendor up. They were sitting in some dank room listening to some guy talking. That's what they get. New covenant worship, right? That's what they get. 
It was very shabby. It was shoddy. By comparison with the eyes, it seemed very dull. You feel like that anytime? I mean, compared with the uh, extravagance of religion today, you feel like that? Don't you want to be extravagant in some ways? Don't you want to have the pizzazz? Well, you know what's funny? <clears throat> if you were to ask a Jew back in the day in the Old Covenant, what was your favorite moment at the devout? I mean, it really like a, a sincere Jew, not, not a faker, but, but a sincere Jew. Well, any sincerely thoughtful, religious-minded Jew would say, well, it's that moment when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. That was the moment that I loved the most. It was the most important spiritual moment of my life. And, you know, the author of Hebrews would say, yeah, I'm sure you enjoyed watching him, didn't you? It looked great. And then the thoughtful Jew would have to say, well, actually, you know what? I never saw the guy. He was behind a veil, all the incense. I never saw the guy. I don't know what he was actually doing behind there. Consider that. The most critical moment for all Jewish hearts behind a curtain, invisible. So I guess for us in the new covenant, why should we complain about a priest we can't see? When the Jews had a priest they couldn't see at their most important moment. Why should, you, why should we complain? We have Jesus Christ. He's in heaven right now. He's presenting himself as our atonement. Do you understand, friends, that your Christianity would be way worse if Jesus Christ were here in the flesh? It would be much worse if Jesus Christ were here in the flesh because he could not, he would not be before God's throne above. It's very selfish to want that. But now he is in God's presence, ministering and serving for you. And he will continue to do so until his third appearing. First appearing, Christ has appeared. Second appearing, now to appear. Third appearing, verse 28, he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, not to bear sin, literally, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. On the day of atonement, there was a climax. The climax was when the high priest finally appeared again. He'd gone into the Holy of Holies and he comes out. And while he was in there, they don't know what's happening. While he was in there, he could be dead for all they know. He could have been struck down. He could have made some mistake in the details. And God, the Holy One, strikes down the unholy priest. While he was in there, they had terror. They were uncertain. They listened for the tinkling of the little bells they put on his outfit to make sure he's still alive. Leviticus 16, 17 tells us that when he came out, he would have made atonement for the whole nation. They waited and they waited and they waited and the veil went open. And in Israel, there was an outburst of joy and praise and gladness. He's not dead. He's, he survived. His work was finished. Around 200 BC, one of the Jewish rabbis said this about the high priest. How glorious he was when he came out of the sanctuary. When the people gathered around him, they said he was like the sun shining and the rainbow beaming. That's how the Jews felt about their high priest. 
when he had finished the task of atonement, like the morning star. And these Christians were saying, where's our morning star? Where's our rainbow moment? Where's our uh, Kodak memory? Where's our great moment for the high priest to appear? We're waiting for him. Where is Jesus? That's why the author says, verse 28, Christ will appear a second time to bring salvation. His third appearing, but his second to us. We call it second coming, of course. And how different this appearing will be than the first appearing. He will appear not as a lowly baby in a manger. He will appear in glory. He will appear not to one small family in Palestine. He will appear with the clouds in heaven. He will appear not cloaked and veiled, but in all his beauty and wonder. He will not come to offer his blood again. He will not come to die again. He will come in resurrection glory. He will bring a culminating salvation. And this appearing will be so much more beautiful than any time the Jewish high priest came out of the Holy of Holies. So much more beautiful than any religious experience or temple or church or cathedral or mosque or worship center on earth. So much more beautiful than anything you and I can imagine. Sin wiped away. Sin cast into hell. Salvation in fullness. When he appears, the bodies of believers reunited with their souls. We'll be perfect and glorified. We'll enter into everlasting life. He will appear a second time to us. So do you see, friends, why he's saying all this? He's saying this because you're tempted to go back. He's saying this because you're tempted to go back. Oh, you're not going to go back to Judaism, obviously. We've covered this many times. The temptation that we face is not to go back to some Jewish form of religion. Some people, I suppose, but not most of us. Our temptation instead is to doubt that Jesus Christ is really doing anything. That he's going to be appearing again. Our temptation is functionally to return to the terms of the old covenant. I must do this and then I will live. Our temptation is to live under a covenant of works. Our temptation is to believe that faith is not enough. But sight has to see something pretty good. That's why he says this last phrase. To those who are waiting for him. The the phrase means those who are waiting constantly. Continually. Without interruption. Not just eagerly, but continually. And there's a little teensy baby warning here. There's a gentle warning here. He will appear to bring salvation to those who are waiting That begs the question, of course, for you. Are you waiting for him? Are you really hoping he doesn't come tomorrow because you got something big planned? Are you waiting for Christ? Are you expectant for Christ to come? Or are your plans so important that you would really hope he waits a week or two or a year? He he waits for you to grow up. He he waits for you to enjoy uh, retirement. He waits for you to find that promotion. He waits for you. To get married, he waits for you to find a friend. He waits for you to cash that check. He just really just doesn't come until you get your plans all settled in. Of course, to put it more theologically, are you expectant for the second coming, for the consummation of all things to occur? D.A. Carson tells a story of uh, his first year at Cambridge. D.A. Carson, one of the great, great New Testament professors, 
great uh, evangelical writer. I think he's an evangelical free guy, good guy. He was at Cambridge his first year. He was a young guy. He, he, he was in his PhD program. And um, <clears throat> there was a tradition that you, you would invite, uh, Cambridge Dons would kind of invite a speaker in. They would teach on a topic. And then they would go have orange juice and sherry. And they would grill the speaker. And um, they, had, they had offered a renowned atheist philosopher, psychologist, excuse me, atheist psychologist to come in and speak. The topic was death and judgment. And uh, the guy canceled. So the professor in charge, the Cambridge Don in charge, just, look, Don Carson, why don't you go in there? Um, I don't have anything else to go. You do it. Don, little Don Carson has a has the opportunity to give a chapel message in front of uh, the cream of the intellectual crop in the world. Many unbelieving professors, but about one in 10 of the students were Christians. He was scared, but he used these words. He used, what, what other words would you use? Verse 27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, he, he, he says that his sermon was not really that great. I mean, he looked at it, he would do it totally different now, of course. But he said the real interesting thing happened at the after party when they had the orange juice and the sherry and they had, uh, well, the interrogation. He went there. He was ready for 45 minutes of, you know, Cambridge intellectual people, uh, anti-Christian folks, you know, really growing to him. And maybe some of his Christian friends trying to help him out. But it's going to be a hard time. He was ready for it. And he sits down. He waits about 20 seconds, ready for the first question, ready for it, ready for it, really nervous, ready for it. There's an old guy in the back, an old math professor. He didn't know him. He spoke up. He said, if we heard more messages like that, the moral rot in England would have been stopped long ago. And for the next hour, Don Carson was able to explain and repeat the very essentials of the gospel message, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ coming again in front of the elites of the academic universe. Why? Because one old guy he never knew from Adam spoke and set the entire atmosphere of the meeting. One guy, all to do with God working in an old man that Don Carson has no idea, but he worked with these words. The point is that this simply, friends, these are very basic truths. You might think these are little elementary principles. I know Christ dies for my sins, duh. I know he's coming back, of course. But when you deal with these foundational truths of the Christian faith, you are to hold them clearly, without equivocation, as Don Carson did when he was a little PhD student. You were to hold them, and you were to ponder them over and over and over again. Ponder the cross. This week, if you want application, here's your application. Ponder more the greatness of the cross of Christ. Ponder more his sacrifice. Meditate upon his resurrection. Obsess yourself with his future return in judgment and glory. That's the application. And see how much better that is than anything else you could ever offer. Anything else this world could offer. Anything else out there. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, we come to you because Christ has come to us. He has appeared once for all to take away sin. He appears now with you. That's what we're praying. 
That's how we can pray with your spirit guiding us, groaning within us. We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would make us a people who obsess over your glorious grace, who are enchanted once more, not by the things that look so good on earth, but who are enchanted once more by your sacrifice and your resurrection and your return. We pray that that would be this week for us. By the power of your spirit and your word, make it so. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.